Chapter 4, Part 2 of Thirty Years a Slave, From Bondage to Freedom, The Institution of Slavery as Seen on the Plantation and in the Home of the Planter. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by James K. White. Thirty Years a Slave, From Bondage to Freedom. The Institution of Slavery as Seen on the Plantation and in the Home of the Planter by Lewis Hughes Chapter 4, Part 2 Going Back for Our Wives After carefully considering the matter, we concluded to go back to Senatobia and see the captain of the Union troops there. The next day, Friday, we hired a two-horse wagon and made preparations to start on our perilous undertaking Saturday morning. It was our hope to find someone at Senatobia to go with us to Panola and protect us in the effort to bring away our wives. So, early in the morning, we set out. Our first stop was at Big Springs Camping Ground, where we made preparations for refreshing ourselves and spending the night just as we had finished building a fire for cooking and keeping off the mosquitoes two soldiers came riding up to the spring hello said one which way are you travelling we are just from memphis said george have you any whiskey asked one of them we replied yes will you give a fellow a horn we answered the question by handing them the bottle while they were drinking george and i stepped aside and after a few moments talk we decided to put the question to them of going with us to get our wives i asked where are you from senatobia replied one we had once laid our cause before them telling them what colonel walker had said regarding our getting someone to go with us on our enterprise they listened attentively and when we had finished one of them asked how much whiskey have you George answered, Two bottles. What do you intend to do when you see the captain at Senatobia? Lay our complaint before him, said I. Now, my friend, said one of the soldiers, I am afraid if you go to the captain you will be defeated. But I'll tell you what I'll do. Give my comrade and me one of your bottles of whiskey, and we will put you on a straight track. The reason why I say this is that our captain has been sweetened by the rebel farmers. He is invited out to tea by them every evening. I know he will put you off. But I will write a note to some comrades of mine who, I know, will bring you out safe. We agreed at once to this proposition and gave them the whiskey. He wrote the note and gave it to us, telling us to go to the last tent on the line in the camp where we would find two boys to whom we should give it. They are brave, said he, and the only two I know of that can help you. If they are not there, don't give the note to anyone else, but wait till they come back on Tuesday night. I feel satisfied that they will go and help you out. With these words, they rode off. George and I felt good over our prospects. A Hazardous Trip the next morning was Sunday, and we started on, reaching Senatobia about eleven o'clock. We went into the camp, following the directions given us, to go to the last tent in the line, but when we reached there, the soldiers were out. 
we lingered around the grounds a short time then went back and found them there we gave them the note and after reading it they simply asked us where we had stopped our wagon i told them outside the village go there said one of them and remain until we come out to see you shortly they came out and after we had told them what we wanted the distance to mcgee's which was about nineteen miles from senatobia and had given them such other information as they desired they concluded that they would go we want to be back said i before daylight monday morning because we must not be seen on the road for we are well known in that section and if discovered would be captured and killed well said one of the soldiers we will have to go back to camp and arrange to be excused from roll call this evening before we can make the trip they went back to camp and in about ten minutes they came out again saying all is right we will go we gave them each ten dollars and promised if they brought us out safely to give each ten dollars more it was now about half past eleven o'clock they had to go to camp and slip their horses out cautiously so as not to be seen by the captain in half an hour we were on our way and after we had ridden some two miles we were overtaken by the two soldiers it was sunday afternoon and our having a wagon attracted much attention from the farmers as we passed along they looked at us so sharply that george and i felt decidedly uneasy yet we kept up courage and pressed steadily on after a long and weary ride we reached old master jack's a little after sundown the soldiers rode into the yard ahead of us and the first person they met was a servant frank at the woodpile they said to him go in and tell your master mr mcgee to come out we want to see him at the same time asking for lewis and george's wives young william mcgee came out and the soldiers said to him we want feed for seventy-five head of horses mcgee said we have not got it just then george and i were coming up we drove in at the gate through the grove and passed the woodpile where mcgee and the soldiers were talking mcgee had just replied we have not got that much feed to spare we are almost out well said the soldiers we must have it and they followed on right after the wagons as we drove past them young mcgee went running into the house saying to his mother it is lewis and george and i'll kill one of them tonight this raised quite an alarm and the members of the family told him not to do that as it would ruin them as soon as george and i drove up to the first cabin which was my wife's and kitty's we ran in kitty met us at the door and said i am all ready she was looking for us we commenced loading our wagon with our few things meanwhile the soldiers had ridden around a few rods and came upon old master jack and the minister of the parish who were watching as guards to keep the slaves from running away to the yankees just think of the outrage upon those poor creatures in forcibly retaining them in slavery long after the proclamation making them free had gone into effect beyond all question as the soldiers rode up to the two men they said hello what are you doing here why have you not told these two men lewis and george that they are free men that they can go and come as they like by this time all the family were aroused and great excitement prevailed the soldiers presence drew all the servants near 
George and I hurried to fill up our wagon, telling our wives to get in, as there was no time to lose. We must go at once. In twenty minutes we were all loaded. My wife, Aunt Kitty, and nine other servants followed the wagon. I waited for a few moments for Mary Ellen, sister of my wife, and as she came running out of the white folks' house, she said to her mistress, Mrs. Farrington, Good-bye. I wish you good luck. I wish you all the bad luck, said she in a rage. But Mary did not stop to notice her mistress further, and, joining me, we were soon on the road following the wagon. Two Brave Men Those soldiers were brave indeed. Think of the courage and daring involved in this scheme. Only two soldiers going into a country of which they knew nothing except that every white man living in it was their enemy. The demand which they made for food for seventy-five horses was a clever ruse, invented by them to alarm the McGees and make them think that there was a troop of horses nearby, and that it would not be safe for them to offer any resistance to our going away with our wives. Had they thought that there were but two soldiers, it is certain that they would have endeavored to prevent us getting away again, and one or more of us would undoubtedly have been killed. As already stated, Nine other slaves followed our wagon, as it moved off. They had no hats on. Some were barefooted. They had not stopped to get anything, but as soon as they saw a chance to get away, they went just as they were at the moment. Aunt Kitty was brave and forethoughtful, for during the week we were gone she had baked and cooked a large amount of substantial food that would keep us from starving while on our journey. At the first road crossing, the two soldiers thought they saw a large troop of soldiers in the distance, and they galloped ahead of us at full speed. But on arriving at the spot, they found that what they had thought soldiers were only a herd of cattle. They rode on to the next crossing, we following as we conveniently could. Each poor slave was busy with his thoughts and his prayers. Now and then one would hear a moan or a word from some of the party. All were scared, even though the soldiers were with us. We came to the next crossroad and passed that safely. Our fear was that the McGees might get the neighborhood to join them and pursue us or send the home guards after us. But Providence was seemingly smiling upon us at last, for no one followed or molested us. We moved on all night until we came to a creek at four o'clock in the morning of Monday. The banks of the creek were very steep and as the horses and wagon went down into the stream, the mattress on top of the wagon, upon which my wife and her sister's children were sitting, was thrown off into the water. Immediately the horses stopped and became bulky. It was such a warm night that they did not want to move on out of the water, and would not start either until they got ready. As soon as the soldiers saw the mattress slide off with my wife and the children, one of them plunged into the water with his horse, and in a minute brought them all out. All had a good ducking. Indeed, it seemed like a baptism by immersion. The drenched ones were wrapped in old blankets, and after an hour's delay, we were again on our way. The soldier said, Now we must leave you. The time is coming when we must be in camp for roll call. If you are not at our camp when roll call is over, we will come back and see about you. We gave them each the second ten dollars, as agreed upon, and, just as they rode to the top of the hill, they left us. We had a clear sweep from this point, 
and we came into Senatobia about nine o'clock in the forenoon. Our two soldier friends, who had brought us out so safely, came out of the camp to see us. They cheered us and seemed glad that they had rendered us service. We stopped at the camp until we had dried our clothes and had some breakfast, and then we made our way to Memphis. Out of bondage at last. My wife and her sister were shoeless, and the latter had no hat on. She had hurried out of the house in such excitement that she thought of nothing but getting away. Having to walk some of the way, as all could not ride in the wagon at the same time, we were all tired, dirty, and rest-broken, and, on the whole, a pitiful crowd to look at, as we came into the city. One venerable old man, bent with age, whose ebony face shone with delight, came running out into the road as we appeared, exclaiming, "'Oh, here they come! God bless em, po' chillin! They come fannin!' We used large palm leaves to fan ourselves with as we were so warm. Those nine souls that followed us walked the whole distance, arriving shortly after we did. Thousands of others, in search of the freedom of which they had so long dreamed, flocked into the city of refuge, some having walked hundreds of miles. It was appropriately the 4th of July when we arrived, and aside from the citizens of Memphis, hundreds of colored refugees thronged the streets. Everywhere you looked you could see soldiers. Such a day I don't believe Memphis will ever see again, when so large and so motley a crowd will come together. Our two soldier rescuers looked us up after we were in Memphis, and seemed truly glad that we had attained our freedom, and that they had been instrumental in it. Only one thing we regret, and that is that we did not learn their names. But we were in so much trouble, and so absorbed in the business which we had in hand, so excited by the perils of our undertaking, that we never thought to ask them their names, or to what regiment they belonged. Then, after we got to Memphis, though we were most grateful for the service which they had rendered us, we were still so excited by our new condition and surroundings that we thought of little else, and forgot that we had no means of establishing, at a later time, the identity of those to whom we owed so much. Freedom that we had so long looked for had come at last, and we gave praise to God, blessing the day when we met those two heroes. It is true that we should have been free sooner or later. Still, but for their assistance, my wife and I might never have met again. If I could not have gone back, which I could never have done alone, until long after, such changes might have occurred as would have separated us for years, if not forever. Thousands were separated in this manner, men escaping to the Union lines, hoping to make a way to return for their families, but, failing in this, and not daring to return alone, never saw their wives or children more. Thanks to God, we were guided to these brave soldiers, and so escaped from so cruel a fate. A WORD FOR MY OLD MASTER In closing this account of my years of bondage, it is perhaps but justice to say of my old master that he was in some respects kinder and more humane than many other slaveholders. He fed well, and all had enough to wear, such as it was. It is true that the material was coarse, but it was suited to the season, and therefore comfortable, which could not truthfully be said of the clothing of the slaves of other planters. 
not a few of these did not have sufficient clothes to keep them warm in winter nor did they have sufficient nourishing and wholesome food but while my master showed these virtues similar to those which a provident farmer would show in the care of his dumb brutes he lacked in that humane feeling which should have kept him from buying and selling human beings and parting kindred which should have made it impossible for him to have permitted the lashing beating and lacerating of his slaves much more the hiring of an irresponsible brute by the year to perform this barbarous service for him the mcgees were charitable as they interpreted the word were always ready to contribute to educational and missionary funds while denying under the severest penalties all education to those most needing it and all true missionary effort the spiritual enlightenment for which they were famishing then our masters lacked that fervent charity the love of christ in the heart which if they had possessed they could not have treated us as they did they would have remembered the golden rule do unto others as ye would that men should do to you possessing absolute power over the bodies and souls of their slaves and grown rich from their unrequited toil they became possessed by the demon of avarice and pride and lost sight of the most vital of the christly qualities end of chapter four part two recording by james k white chula vista